Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen. In state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Hello, and welcome back to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Every two weeks, we craft a double feature of films connected through one element or another. The only caveat, those films must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We also highlight new additions to the collection, hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. My name is Ian, and this is my lovely friend and co-host, Mackenzie. Hello. And this week, Mackenzie and I are connecting back to last week's pick, The Watermelon Woman, with my connection, spy number 1018. The seminal documentary, Paris is Burning. But before we get into that, (laughs) Mackenzie, it was a week for cinephiles. So I know (laughs) that you went and did the Barbenheimer uh, double feature in movie theaters. I did not. But please, I know you're covering that over on ADP today. Uh, Did you watch Mm -hmm. anything else? Maybe give us a quick, very brief rundown of your Barbenheimer experience. Yeah, uh, I was. I had an unexpected Barbenheimer experience. I wasn't expecting to see the Inheimer part of it, uh, but Rachel <laughs> really, really, really wanted to go, and it was Rachel's birthday, so we went. And uh, I put my review up, my five star rating up, before me and Kev pivoted to talking about it on uh, ADP. So my rating has been up for a few days. I adored um, Oppenheimer, uh, and I have to say about Barbie, which I assume you will talk about a little bit. Uh, my takes may shock you, so. You have to check out our episode uh, with with the lovely Bex, Becca Stone from the, uh, the VHS Village that we're a part of. Um, she's sort of a, a, just a wonderful ray of light who is in that Discord, and we were really, really glad to have her on as a Nolan fangirly and a lover of Greta. So, um, yeah, it was really wonderful. Uh, but, yeah, I am really – I'm hitting my, like – you know, I've been saying this forever. I just cannot get myself to watch a damn movie lately. Uh, and I'm trying hard not to shame myself for it because lately I've just been watching a lot of Critical Role, uh, which I've loved <laughs> yeah. for years. But I always fall behind on their episodes because there's four hour blocks of D&D. Um, but I've just been dedicating myself to just sitting down and putting it on during the day while I work. So I've honestly just been watching Critical Role. Um, but this week I did revisit an old family favorite in this house, which is 1998's Ever After starring Drew Barrymore. It is lovely. It is a retelling of Cinderella. I do genuinely think it's probably my favorite Cinderella version ever. I'm a little biased because it's Rachel's favorite movie of all time. And back when we first started dating, I think like the second or third date, we were long distance. So we were dating via Skype. Uh, our second or third date was us showing each other our favorite movies. Uh, and I showed Rachel Big Fish because that was my favorite movie at the time going out of college. Uh, and I bawled my eyes out and I was so embarrassed. Uh, and then we watched Ever After together. So it's really it's one of the first things Rachel and I ever did as a couple. And uh, most years on her birthday, we we, we watch it because it's just kind of always been a favorite. And, uh, you know, Drew Barrymore has a questionable British accent. 
but I love <laughs> Drew. <laughs> I love her a lot. And I think it has such interesting takes on the origins of the little cinder girl and uh angelica houston always a queen gives quite the performance in this movie with some like amazing nuance and pain and just interesting choices put into the character of the evil stepmother that i feel like doesn't normally get like nuance or interesting uh takes given to her right she's there to be evil she's the evil stepmother but um angelica houston being the talented actress she is takes it to another level so yeah, we love Ever After in this house. It's great. I, I We love Ever After in this house. I don't know if Frankie's ever seen it, but I had that VHS growing up and I adored it. I watched it and watched it and watched it. I agree. I think it's one of the better Cinderella stories out there. It just like decides to take risks and be interesting and it's great. It has America's Sweetheart and Melanie Linsky in it, who... I adore from but I'm a cheerleader and yellow jackets. Um, it is it's really lovely. It's really great. Uh yeah, that's pretty much the only thing I watched this week outside of my podcast films that were Barbenheimer uh and the wonderful Paris is Burning, which we'll be talking about later. And literally up until the moment I was hopping on this call, I was watching the Paris is Burning outtakes that are on YouTube, uh, which are like two whole hours of extra footage from the film. So watched a lot of Paris is Burning today. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, hoping, you know, I'm enjoying my critical role. I'm hoping I can check out some more films soon. But uh, Ian, I know you also had a pretty light week, but you checked out the Barb half of the Barbenheimer. I did. I did. I, um, I remember when Barbie first got announced, I was so hype. We are both Greta Gurley's in this house. Greta Gurley's, Frankie, maybe. Yeah, I, I love Greta Gerwig. I have since Frances Ha, as I talked about on our Frances Ha episode. Um, and if Frankie loves any filmmaker, it is Greta Gerwig. She is her favorite filmmaker. It's one of the very few filmmakers Frankie knows by name. Little Women is a uh, annual film we watch that is our christmas uh mm. that is our christmas film as opposed to everybody else's like lord of the rings or elf or whatever um but in winter yeah so i was i was i was really anticipating barbie and in the past weeks as you know i've talked with you and some of our other friends offline i've just been really depressed i've struggled a lot with my depression that comes back and rears its ugly head every mm -hmm. so often as well as my anxiety that seems to get only worse and worse as I get older. So I had really soured on Barbie. I was like, this is just a piece of communist. Sorry, <laughs> this is just a piece of capitalistic bullshit. Greta is making a two-hour advertisement for Mattel, and it's probably going to do lip service to feminism. And while that last point may be somewhat true, we were having <laughs> a brief conversation off mic, and maybe people can hear your opinions more in depth over on ADP. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of issues with this film. Uh, but I really honed in on a very specific thing. I wrote like a four-page review on Letterboxd so that people can go and read. Um, I really think that the existentialism in the Barbie movie, which, yes, is somewhat defined by the now-memed widely line from the trailer, do you guys ever think about dying, is actually quite potent. I think there's a lot throughout the film, while it may not be the most prevalent theme, throughout Barbie um, to signal to depressed and sad people uh, that this is a story for you. I, you know, I just got a lot out of it, surprisingly. You know, uh, again, I know it's trying to tackle misogyny. I know it's trying to tackle patriarchy. And, you know, you and I have briefly discussed where it fails, even though it's swinging big. And I applaud mm -hmm. it for that. 
Um, even as like, oh, uh, you know, Mackenzie, I want to go on and on and on, but like, I should, <laughs> I should cut myself off. Um, if people want to know what I thought about it, I've got a lengthy review you can read. I really loved it, and I think it found me at a time when I needed it. It just so happened yeah. to come out when I was am still going through this really weird funk in my life. But yeah, I watched that. I also revisited my favorite, The Worst Person in the World. Cried a lot. Mm. I love that movie. <laughs> it's a, it's such a gem. I can't wait for us to talk about it one day. Um, But yeah, like you said, we didn't really watch. You didn't really watch that much. I didn't really watch that much. But you did tell me that there's some news. Yeah, there's not a ton of Criterion news as last time i think yeah last week was where we had the, mm-hmm. the new uh, spine titles and all the stuff that's coming in the channel next month um but genus contemporaries which we talked about a few episodes ago this new sort of sub label sub label of janus that is going that we talked about how we think this is a great way for janus to support new films without necessarily putting them in the collection immediately after before giving them time to maybe I don't know, become more culturally significant, I guess. I, I do feel like that's somewhat of a signifier of a Criterion film is, is a cultural significance or an artistic significance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that I'm excited about Janus Contemporaries because it's going to give films uh, releases, physical releases, while maybe not necessarily putting them in the collection. Uh, and we announced that some of the first uh, editions will be EO, uh, No Bears, and The Innocent. And uh, Criterion slash... Janice Contemporaries uh, announced that all of these are officially coming out into physical release uh, October 17th. So we have a release date for that. You can pre-order those if you love the donkey movie. If you really want to check out, uh, <laughs> I, oh, I forget, uh, Louis Garrel, who was in Little Women yeah. that we yeah. love, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he's cute. If you want to check out his, I, I, I think, directorial debut, but I, maybe I'm misspeaking. It's not that. his debut. It's uh, his latest. Oh, his latest. Wow, he's a direct, He's a real director. He has yeah, more I think, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he has a cinema pedigree i believe he belongs to a family oh that that wouldn't shock me with a nose like that i mean (laughs) come on uh but if you love if you love criterion uh edition that we love uh portrait of lady on fire this film stars noemi merlant it seems so Mm -hmm. you know great and no bears looks amazing um so yeah if you want to check these films out they're coming to janus contemporaries in october once again criterion you should give us money because we're doing so much advertising for you yeah my gosh but also we love you that's why we do it (laughs) That's why we do it. We do this pro bono. But that is all I have in terms of Criterion updates. Sweet and simple. Honestly, uh, much needed after our extravaganza from last week. <laughs> exactly. It was, it was so much news. I felt, I felt a little sorry for the listener. Maybe they were just getting... I can read this, guys. You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, I think it's time we move on and get to it because I think we're both chomping at the bits to talk, talk yes. Paris is Burning. Let's do it. Voguing come from and what exactly is throwing shade? <laughs> Sorry, what a hilarious opening to a synopsis on Criterion. Yeah, great. This, what exactly is throwing shade? 
This landmark documentary provides a vibrant snapshot of the 1980s through the eyes of New York City's African-American and Latinx Harlem drag ball scene. Made over seven years, Paris is Burning offers an intimate portrait of rival fashion houses, from fierce contests for trophies to house mothers offering sustenance in a world rampant with homophobia, transphobia, racism, AIDS, and poverty. Featuring legendary voguers, drag queens, and trans women, including Lily Ninja, Pepper La Beja, Dorian Corey, and Venus Extravaganza, Paris is Burning brings it, celebrating the joy of movement, force of eloquence, and the draw of community. Paris is Burning. I believe this was a first watch, but I do want to know what is your history with, you know, Paris is Burning, if any, this type of culture. I would say maybe that even the spiritual successor in our modern culture, RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, you know, things like that. Like, what is your kind of, uh, what, what, what kind of was your relationship with, with ball culture and drag culture before watching this film? I'm actually very happy you asked, Mackenzie. Uh, so yes, this was definitely a first watch for me. And it was like a long, uh, uh, somewhat, it was a long put off for me. Like I put it off for a very long time, mostly because, um, I wanted to watch it, uh, for the podcast and I needed a connection. And so I was kind of like waiting and just searching for the right time. And when, as I said last week, when you were like, we're going to do the watermelon woman, cause it's coming out and we got to do it as soon as humanly possible. It was like, great. Easiest connection, queer connection. We're doing it. Um, so yeah, I've been really wanting to watch it for a very long time because I love, love, love drag. Um, <laughs> like absolutely adore it. Um, I grew up in the South and I grew up kind of um, sheltered in a way. My mom and dad are very uh, normal. They're not conservative. They're not strict. They're just normal. There's nothing special about the way that they are really. Um, but I didn't grow up in queer community and I knew I was probably queer from a very early age. I didn't really know how exactly or how that manifested or what my exact orientation was. Um, but it was really hard. I say all this because it was really hard to find community. Um, I did not grow up in a queer community. I did not grow up with queer community. Um, but when I got to college, I started to find some. Not a lot, but some. And a lot of that was in uh, drag bars. And so the the small queer community that I eventually did uh, eventually hold uh, centered around that and drag culture. So that that that's pretty much the extent of it. Once I left college, it kind of fizzled out. I want to, I mean, not to go on a huge ramble because I really want to ask you the question in return. But when I left college, that was basically when the pandemic started. And mm. since then, my household has not really ever recovered from that. I know a lot of people have gotten back to life as normal, but we are very COVID conscious and we Same. both surround ourselves with people who are very COVID conscious as well as immunocompromised. And so we just don't get out and we don't get to do a lot of things. And so we have really not been able to find community such as that. But alas, 
I absolutely love drag. In fact, as a kid, I would often dress in drag, dress in drag um, for videos and silly little movies that my friends would make. And it was a way for me to explore my femininity and my gender. And at this point in my life, I do identify as non-binary. So I use they, then pronouns for anybody who's coming to the show new. Of course, it's in the it's in the episode description, but <laughs> just so you know. And yeah, I, I really loved this film for a multitude of reasons we'll get into. But one of those reasons, a big reason was the way in which it talked about and displayed and exhibited gender in all its many forms in the spectrum that it is in all its beautiful, beautiful glory. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a long winded way of saying like, I've got some experience with dragon and much love for it, but Mackenzie, what about you? I know your childhood and upbringing was a little bit different. So I'm very keen to hear like, what's your relationship with drag? God, it's yeah. I've talked about it a bit with friends, but I don't know if I've ever really talked to it about it to an extent on a, a podcast before. So everyone is going to get to know a lot about me. Um, I definitely had a unique childhood. My mother is a lesbian. Um, and I, for the record did not even consider the fact that I could be queer until I was like 18 or 19. Like I grew up in a very queer environment, but always assumed it was my mom's thing and never could be mine. Even though I was a huge tomboy and very obviously gay from a young age, it just didn't really cross my mind. Um, <laughs> But when I was little, I was surrounded by gay people, just constantly, pretty much. I distinctly remember my mother always hosted L Word watch parties and uh, queers folk watch parties with all of her gay friends. And I would be uh, put into my room because I wasn't allowed to watch the adult shows. Um, But I had I was put into a queer community at a very young age because my mother's uh, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. So Southern, pretty small queer community. And. I think about the first prides I ever went to in Memphis and how it was like maybe 60 people. And obviously now it's this huge thing on Beale street. Um, but when I was a kid, it was just in a park. And I remember all the time people knew who I was. They knew I was Kissy's kid. Kissy's my mom's nickname. And, uh, they'd be like, oh, that's Kissy's kid. And, and I remember when I was little, I was called the gay kid of <laughs> the kid of gay Memphis is what people called me. <laughs> like that era of queer people didn't have children really. And, my mom did through, you know, other various circumstances that are not worth getting into on the podcast. <laughs> but um, I was kind of the kid that of this community. And so I, I remember the very first time I met a drag queen in person. My mother worked at a place where um, she sold hair products, hair styling products. And there was a queen named Isis who had won Miss Gay Memphis or something. And I remember my mother was delivering a basket of uh, hair products to her while we, she was doing a photo shoot at a gay bar. Uh, there used to be two gay bars named Backstreet and Metro in Memphis. This is like if anyone from like vintage gay Memphis listens to this, you're going to be sent back to 1998. <laughs> um, now there's only one gay bar called Drew's Place that my mom frequents. But um, at that time, there was Backstreet Metro. I don't remember which one we were at. But I remember my mom was like, yeah, it's, eh, it's not open. You can probably go in. So I went in with my mother. And I remember I saw Isis on the stage. And she was just this tall, beautiful Amazon. And I was just like, my jaw was dropped. And I just, and I remember I was like seven or eight and I walked up to her and my mom and her were talking. She was like, who is this? And my mom was like, this is my daughter. And I remember I looked up at her and I said, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. (laughs) And she laughed and she was like, thank you. And I remember like, that's such a fun memory to me. Cause as a kid, like I had no idea for how like special that might've felt to her or how special that Mm -hmm. would be for me in hindsight. 
And my mother and I watched the very first season of RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, I'm tearing up. Sorry. Um, we watched the very first season of RuPaul's Drag Race together when it first premiered when nobody was watching that show <laughs> and uh my mom and i all through my life watched every season of rupaul's drag race so i had a very like comfortable connection to drag and about college i started noticing these catchphrases that rupaul would use uh she bring it to you every ball why y'all gagging so and uh field touch this skin and all these kinds of phrases i thought were so fun and then i saw someone on the internet say oh well they're from paris is burning and i was like what is that? And so uh, in college, I sought out this movie. Uh, and yeah, it was a completely mind blowing experience to watch a film as beautiful as this that um, I mean, this community, I feel like is the basis for so much of queer culture nowadays, like the, 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 the free, the terminology, the phrasing, the, the love, the life, the pride, the community. It's so beautiful. It's so inspirational. In some ways, we've gotten a little too far away from this, I think, in our queer communities uh, nowadays. But there's still so much, um, the roots, I think, of modern queer culture is so a part of Paris is Burning. And watching it in college, I was just amazed by it and absolutely loved it. And yeah, so I, I had a very queer childhood. My whole life, I was, I was encouraged to to be who I was. I never really learned bigotry against queer people because it was my family. And, um, and I've always had a connection with drag queens. I mean, out through college, I was at the drag bar every other weekend in Nashville, uh, going to drag shows. And it was just something I always had a, a comfort with. And yeah, in terms of my own gender, I was a very tomboyish child. I dressed in boys' clothes. I used to tell my mother pink would burn my skin so that if my mother put pink on me, I would start writhing on the ground and and like hissing and acting like a full freak. Um, and eventually I grew out of that and started dressing a bit more femininely. Um, and it was interesting. I, you know, my mother told me she was happy that I was dressing more feminine. And I remember at one point my mother asked me if I was gay when I was like 10. And I was like, what? No. And my mom said, oh, thank God. And I remember for the longest time that stuck with me, my mother being uh, relieved that I wasn't gay. And obviously my mother's very supportive of me now. Um, but I was thinking about that as I watched Paris is Burning today when I was listening to, um, I don't know if it's in the film, but it's in the outtakes of Pepper LaBeja saying it is so hard to be gay. I don't know why people think we choose this when it is so hard to be gay. And my mother, I think, always was scared that I would be gay if only because she was scared I would have a harder life. But then I watch things like Paris is Burning and yes, there are some things that feel really hard and shitty about being gay sometimes, but it's never the me of it, right? It's never the fact that I'm gay. It's the fact of the society that I'm being gay within. And when I watch things like Paris is Burning, I think like, God, I'm so happy that I'm gay. I love not mm. being straight. <laughs> I love I love being a woman that feels comfortable in my masculinity. I love being a dyke. I love being a lesbian. And I watch films like Paris is Burning and I see these communities and it makes me like, I'm just so happy to be a part of this history. This is the history I want. I was born to be a part of. And I'm so glad that, that in some way I am a part of it when I watch something like Paris is burning. So I've rambled a bit, but yeah, I had a very, I think unique relationship to queerness as a child. Um, that was, I think a blessing. I really do as a gay person. Um, God, I was bawling this entire runtime and I'm already like yeah. tearing up during this recording. No, already, so we're getting my, into it. We're going to get into my, it. My, my 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 throat is already in knots i'm very <laughs> this movie made me so emotional and for a multitude of reasons and 
I love the way that you just said, like, you love being gay um, because it's something that I love about myself is my queerness. And uh, I love the fluidity and the freedom that being queer and non-binary gives to me. This is going to be a really hard podcast, Mackenzie. (laughs) This might be Um, my favorite episode we ever do. But um, I I had a very similar conversation actually with my father when he asked me if I might be gay, and I said no because I, I don't I don't think of myself as gay. Yeah. I think of myself as like queer, but also like I don't strictly like boys, even though I do. Um, <laughs> I've had a couple boyfriends in my day, uh, but I remember him being similarly like I would love you if you were, but that would make your life so much more Hard. difficult and I would hate that for you and it's just such a it's it's almost fascinating that your lesbian mom yeah said a very similar thing to you I think it's I think it's interesting in that it's different because she has the firsthand experience mm-hmm. I almost feel like my father was saying like I don't want to have the secondhand heartache yeah of having you having to deal with that in a way it was very loving I understand where he was coming from but uh, it always kind of stuck with me, and it's probably the reason that I have never actually formally come out to them in mm. any major way. They still use he, him pronouns when addressing me, refer to me as their son, which I actually don't mind that part. It's the pronouns that bother me. Uh, my mom listens to this podcast sometimes. She might be listening right now. Uh, Hello. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just how it works. Um, but getting to the film a little bit, um, this sent just floods of memories coming back to me because as I was kind of alluding to, and I guess I kind of said it, I haven't been to a drag show in ages. Um, the closest I have come to a queen in recent memory is like Pride events. Mm-hmm. Um, the last company I worked for before my current job, they had a drag queen do bingo with us, which was so much fun. Yes. Probably one of the better same. days I've had at that job. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I... I I love this culture so much because of the community that it finds itself in, or the, I, I guess I mean to say the ways in which community manifests itself because the creativity, the safe Harbor, the just absolutely rapturous joy that can come out in these moments where people are dying and being killed. Um, by disease, by people, by hatred. Um, it's funny because I like was I was talking about us doing this film this week on the last episode, Mackenzie, and I was worried. I was like, oh no, this is not going to be nearly as fun as the Watermelon <laughs> Woman. And you corrected me. You were like, no, there's a lot of fun in this. And I there's was like, joy, yeah. over yeah, there was so much joy in this. And I think that's probably the most beautiful thing about the queer community and queer people is life. Aside from Jewish people, which I know you're very familiar with as well, yes. <laughs> funny enough, uh, I am to life. <laughs> they're, yeah, they are the other community, which is simply it's these communities that find joy and make happiness and light, even when their surroundings and the constant struggle is always present. Um, and I think that's something that's so amazing about Paris is Burning is that it is such a happy film, as you said. As you as you as you rightly corrected me <laughs> on our last episode, like there's a lot of fun in it and there's a lot of happiness. There's a lot of joy and love. So much love. Um 
yeah i mean i'm i'm, but, I'm i know it's gonna be a rambling episode we're both gonna ramble uh, here yeah. and there, but like damn it's it's a, such an emotionally impactful film i mean i i yeah it take it away from me because I need to formulate some other thoughts, but yeah. I just, I was so blown away by it. No, I, I think it's interesting that you compare those two communities, right? The Jewish community and the queer community, um, you know, two minority communities in our country and across the world. And something that I find interesting about Paris is burning. You mentioned, you know, these communities are dying. Uh, there is an implicit thing that hangs over films of this era, right? AIDS was happening and I actually find it very interesting that this film doesn't really talk about it like we know it was happening we know it was happening to this community and I watched two hours of the extended footage it comes up twice maybe in the extended footage so it 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 wasn't even I I thought it would come up more in the in the cut footage from the film um but it it really didn't and I was kind of shocked but I think that that ultimately is kind of wonderful for it because it allows it to focus on other aspects of the community and focus on other aspects of what was bringing the joy during times of pain for many other reasons I think it focused on mostly the fact that people were ostracized from their families that they made these found families they found mothers that would love them in this community because their own mothers couldn't uh wouldn't I should say you always can it's about choice and I think about that, Rachel and I talk about that too with like with Jewish films, right? There's if you're if you're watching a Jewish film set in a certain time period, there is something implicit that hangs over it, right? Like Fiddler on the Roof is a masterpiece of Jewish cinema. There's something hanging over that film. They don't really talk about it. And there's a there's a beauty to that of of not having to acknowledge it because we need to focus on life. We have to focus on the life of these people as opposed to the to the deaths of them. And so I think that that's actually kind of a really interesting and brave choice of Jenny Livingston because a lot of films coming out of the new queer cinema movement were exclusively talking about AIDS. And so, uh, and this community specifically, uh, Black and Latinx, trans women and trans people and gay men were the ones who were most affected, really affected by this, by this disease. And so I think it's kind of beautiful in a sense to not focus on it because we know it's there. Um, yeah, there's so much joy in this movie, but there's so much heartbreak to me because there's this like all of these people are dead right (laughs) sorry i'm gonna cry and they should still be with us and it's really sad and they all died so young and they died of things they couldn't control pepper labeja died of heart attack not even aids and octavia saint laurent died of cancer they both had hiv they didn't even die from that you know what I mean? Like it's, it just feels like fucking unfair and weird and like anything to do with AIDS makes me so sad because we lost so many, I said this last week too, we lost so many beautiful people from this. And so Paris is burning does make me cry pretty much the entire runtime because I just wish that they were still with us. Uh, Cause they deserve to be, but I also love God. Sorry. I love that in the film they talk about wanting to be remembered and wanting to be a part of history and wanting to be famous and though they did not get to see that they are this movie writes them into our history this movie makes sure they will never be forgotten and that's why i love this movie is because this is just a few people there's so many people we don't even know about right but like I will never forget Pepper LeBeige and I will never forget Venus Extravaganza and I will never forget Octavia Saint Laurent I will never forget any of them because of this film 
And though they didn't get to see that impact, there's a beauty there. And I watched this. um, If you watch it on the Criterion channel, I absolutely recommend checking out the 2019 conversation with director Jenny Livingston, as well as two people from the film. Uh, The guy who, Sol, who did the, um, the military drag, he is in it. Mm-hmm. He has a crazy story. He was married to a woman when he he was straight and married to a woman and in the military when he started doing balls. It is a crazy story. You have to hear it to believe it. And uh, Freddie, who is the guy in the striped jacket on the pier, they're still with us today. And hearing them talk about it is so amazing too because they feel that too. They feel this I, this feeling of like it's sad to see them again when you watch this film, but like they feel so grateful for the legacy that was able to be left from the film. And they talk about how even in 2023, people are watching this movie for the first time and it still feels so special um, because it was so needed then. And it's still so desperately needed today. We still have not made the progress we need. Trans people are still being targeted in this country and killed systematically. And like, this film will always be needed as long as that is happening um, because it humanizes trans people. It humanizes and shows love to these communities. And it's just, yeah, sorry. I feel like I'm just bawling. Like literally like I was crying like half the runtime because I watched these people and God, like when you know the ending, every scene with Venus is so sad and it's even more fucking sad in the extended footage. I don't recommend it if it's like something you're sensitive to because her talking about her dreams for the future and her life in the extended footage is just so sad. Um, Again, that happens every single day. Trans women are killed by men who paid to be with them, who wanted to be with them and have their own internalized bullshit going on. So they take their rage out on these women uh, and it's fucked up. Um, now I'm rambling. So like, yeah, there, there's all this joy, but it's like there is this implicit sadness that's hard to avoid. But I like feeling this sadness because I want to feel this grief for them because they deserve to be grieved to this day. And sorry i'm still talking but i I recently read an andrew garfield quote that resonated with me about grief about how grief is the unexpressed love and like i like the idea that us grieving them on this podcast and us grieving them while we watch this film is the is we're giving them love we're giving them love that they deserved so uh sorry audience (laughs) sorry audience for this podcast audio this is a really beautiful film and i think that as queer people it just there's an extra level of resonance. I think anyone can enjoy this movie, but when it's your people, it feels different. And I bet people who are not white like us, who are queer also, who watch this film, I can't imagine how resonant this film must be. Sorry, I've made you so fucking sad, Ian, that we can't even record. <laughs> no, I just... I, I've never... I mean... Hmm. no the um oh yeah i mean the uh, i i I knew going into this what was i think i think it's something we we just have to talk about because it's already i mean you've already brought it up is like you know venus um she died like during the making of the film and they never found her killer which makes me want to still i'm so fucking pissed yeah um uh and he and and he just yeah no he must have been like some other fucking hack that she describes in the film when 
he wanted to be with her, but when he finally found out like what was between her legs at the current time, like flips and gets violent. And that's probably what happened. We'll never know for sure, but it's obvious that's probably what happened. Yeah. And it just fucking rips out my fucking heart because this is still happening and people don't give a shit. Some people give a shit, but not enough people give a shit. It's it's one of the most heartbreaking things in the world amidst all the chaos and amidst all the heartbreaking shit that we have to deal with every single day. Um, yeah, it is just it it is it is so poignant and pointed that this film doesn't linger on that. Yeah, it doesn't. It moves on quickly. Um, it doesn't make um, Paris is burning a uh, AIDS sermon or a you know protect trans people sermon. Um, but by its very nature, it is a sermon on the joy and happiness of queer life and that it is just life. I love her and I barely knew, I barely know her at this point, but I love her and I miss her. And I just can't imagine what she would have gotten to do if she had gotten to go on. Yeah, like just like, I don't know. Yeah. Like sh- stuff around this time. Like I, I talked about a lot last week. Like we have to remember, we have to remember these people as queer people. We have to engage in these stories and we have to remember these people because these people like Paris is burning paved so many paths for queer cinema and queer voices in this world. And like, we have to watch these movies and engage with them. And this, as soon as we forget the names of, Venus Extravaganza and Doreen Corey and all of these amazing women. Um, we might as well just give the fuck up. Like we need, like this is part of being queer, I think, is respecting and loving this history that we come from, even the hardest parts of it. Uh, I, I, Paris is Burning is just so seminal. Like I think it might be one of the most seminal queer films ever made because it is, it is a snapshot of a time and a place and a community filled with so much love i mean god like the love of these families is so beautiful and so amazing and these families are still around today like you know labejas are on rupaul's drag race the house of extravaganza is still going the current mother is actually interviewed on the criterion channel as well talking about how she first saw the film in 95 and 99 joined the house of extravaganza and is now 20 years later the mother of the house of extravaganza and like years and years and years and years later there's still this resonance with this community and it's just it's really really beautiful and i again this isn't the extended footage that i definitely recommend it's on youtube it, letterboxd incorrectly says it's on criterion channel it's not it's just on youtube but it's still really cool or it's on the disc if you purchase a paris is burning disc but there was a part where freddie the guy in the striped jacket is just like it's just so fun to be gay we can make anything fun we can be the most boring places we can be on the subway and it's just so fun it's just fun being together and that and that's something I feel like I miss as a queer person in 2023. Part of it is the pandemic, sure. But I yearn for a community like this. I yearn for a community yeah. and a found family like this because I think in the age of internet and the age of various, you know, things that affect this, I think I think that like the queer community has become just so much more splintered, right? And I think people clearly have their own communities, but... I think maybe that's another reason why this movie makes me emotional because I don't have that. I don't really have a community like this and I, I wish I did because it seems like what a beautifully freeing place. I love those quotes in the film of when you come here, you can be whoever you are outside and you can be 
sad and you can be unaccepted and you can be homeless and you can be poor and you can be whatever you are outside these walls but you walk into the ball and you are everything you wanted to be like I love that I love that idea that freedom that beauty in that um and I yearn for that I don't have that as a queer person and I just think it's again it's just it's just such a beautiful movie like this is just you just want it to wash over you because it is just so stunning um the love the love of this movie this movie is all about love and it's 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 astounding I feel like I almost I I feel like I almost had that in college and like through a lot of different things personal and also just circumstances outside of my control i.e pandemic and other and other things I, I I missed it and lost it and it's like makes me so angry that like it was almost within my grasp having this community of loving you know mm-hmm. queer folk um and it's so hard to find where I live. We were talking about a little bit about this off mic, but I mean, you live in Chicago, which is in Illinois, which is not exactly, you know, California or uh, New York, but, you know, I live in Fort Worth, Texas, which is itself a red city in a red state. Um, yeah. And it's just so hard to find this community and even feel safe sometimes and the fullest expression of yourself, which I've told you uh, and I think this would be an interesting place to talk about like gender and the representation of trans folk, uh, you know, Venus and otherwise. Uh, but it, it's, it sometimes is scary to like, think about walking out in the fullest form of, ex- of your own expression where I live. Mm-hmm. And I would love to maybe potentially dress more in drag or dress more flamboyantly even. And I've always felt more feminine always felt more comfortable in women's clothes i get away with what i can um at least what i feel safe doing where i live um whether that be women's trousers jeans or blouses that are more t-shirt like um but yeah i i I say all that to just say like i loved watching venus so much and i just i i loved her so much and just watching her be so comfortable in her skin Mm -hmm which is something I yearn for and just she was so adorable with her stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and like you, like you were getting at talking about her life that she wants and how she just wanted to be married and, you know, love her husband. I don't want us to get like <laughs> back to our cry fest, but like, you know, I just, I, I, I loved this snapshot in time of trans culture and trans people even if it was like somewhere where it was safer obviously obviously it wasn't safe but like they felt like they could be who they were and also sometimes it's more dangerous to not express yourself and be who you are for 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 most people um but yeah like the 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 even the ideas of transitioning at that time were somewhat foreign to me i didn't know that people i mean i knew i know it's gone back long before the time of paris is burning but like so commonplace so matter of fact and so freeing um i believe it was it um please correct me if i'm wrong but was it um venus who had fully transitioned no it was carmen um on the beach right when that's one of my favorite scenes and yeah, God, it made me so fucking happy. I love that scene. I love her. I love it so much. You know, it's 
I was thinking about it. Like, obviously, it's some dated language in terms of like Pepper talking about like because I can't get pregnant because I can't bleed. I, I, I can never understand being a woman. And I think that we've, as a society, moved past maybe those less those more bioessentialist yeah. ideals mm-hmm. of womanhood. Because not even cis women, not all cis women can have yeah. babies, and not all cis women have periods. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's not a marker of womanhood anymore. I don't think. But I love the yeah. different the different levels, right? We have of like Pepper being like. I don't want to transition like I and in the extended footage she talks she's like I love being a mother and a father and I think that maybe if Pepper was alive today she maybe like non-binary labels I think she likes being in that middle space um and then yeah we have Carmen who uh had bottom surgery of some sort and I love that that felt like her final marker of womanhood um and that's not the final marker of womanhood for every trans woman on earth obviously but like I love that scene because I love her being like I'm a woman I'm, I did it and now all those doors are closed and I get to just be a woman and I'm as yeah. free as the wind on this beach wind. and I love yes. her just running and I love the drag of just like she still has that voice though which that voice like, though like yeah. them just like laughing together <laughs> and loving one another like you know trans women gave us our rights and I just don't think we appreciate them enough I mean Marsha P. Johnson threw the first brick at Stonewall she is who started the gay rights movement kind of officially right and like Trans women gave us our rights, and I do love that this film uh, explores gender and transness at this time because it was important in these communities. It wasn't, and it should always be important in our community. It's why those fuckos, LGB without the T, like you are not a part of our community. Like, go fuck yourself if you are queer and you don't respect and love trans people. Like, it's you are bullshit at this point. <laughs> you are. Yeah, like it just doesn't make any sense. And yeah, I love the different. I love that scene with Carmen. Sorry to interrupt you, but like no. I. I adore that scene with Carmen. And yeah, Venus, I think, wants to transition. I just don't think she monetarily can. Um, Mm -hmm. And the extended footage, she talks about the house they're at. She lives with her grandmother, who's actually really supportive of her. Um, And so she lives with her grandma, and she just kind of, I think she's hoping to transition uh, fully, quote unquote, at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, like I like that we're seeing these kind of different levels even, too. And they talk about passing a Mm -hmm. lot, which I think is interesting, because that's, I think... Mm -hmm. A hot topic i you know what i mean like octavia has a certain amount of privilege because in her community mm-hmm. she can pass she can go out and 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 look like a woman quote unquote and not necessarily be harassed as much as maybe someone like venus who i think obviously i think looks like a woman but clearly had some harder issues with things and so yeah i think it's interesting that they get into really nuanced i think complicated themes of the trans community um, what does it mean to transition? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to feel comfortable in your own skin? What does it feel to pass? You know, I, I think it, I, it does what a good documentary should do and just kind of puts a, puts a window up to these conversations and lets the people yeah. within them have those conversations with each other, which I think is interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a great point to bring up. I think it is an expertly crafted documentary because there feels like there's almost zero interference from Jenny Livingston. Mm-mm. Um, it feels like the narrative is not being shaped by anybody but the people that it's about, um, which I absolutely adored. I loved how the framing device is essentially Pepper LaBeja, uh bringing up like, oh, you want my full name and you want me to say who I am and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and then by the end of the film, Pepper LaBeja is a commanding screen presence where throwing shade at other drag houses and like i'm the best i'm the most respected i'm the most loved i have the most power and that's just one example of the way that we get to live with these people and fully know them and love them i keep on saying this like i love them like i love they are 
in 75 minutes, I feel so connected to these people and their lives. And I feel like I know them. I cannot wait to go and watch two more hours yeah, the ex- of their lives. The extended footage is fun. It doesn't, it's not as uh, polished, right? It's not really telling a story as much as Paris is burning is. Uh, it's mostly just like unused footage, uh, but a lot of it's interesting. It just gives you time to exist um, more with these people. And um, it's funny what you said there, like how you, you love them and you feel like you know them in that 2019 convo. That I, again, if you love the movie, I recommend you watch this. Um, the uh, Thomas Allen Harris, the he's a filmmaker who was hosting this talk between Jenny Livingston and the two people from the film. Uh, they talked about like how atmospheric the talking heads were when like, when you think of a documentary, you think of like someone against a blank wall talking to the camera, but in these yes. you get their home, you see Venus on her you bed. You live in their space with them. Yeah. You, you watch yeah. uh, Octavia in her bed kind of just laying and smoking a cigarette and, and ruminating on I the be like them. I want to be like this and I want to be a rich somebody. It's one of my favorite lines of I am somebody, yeah. but I want to be a rich somebody. Cause like mm. girl, I can relate. Uh, and Dory and Corey's mm. room is so evocative like this she has this sort of i don't mean this in a negative way but like hoarder-esque room with dresses and wigs and Mm -hmm. and artifacts of her long life in ball culture um all over her house and i think that's so fascinating and and cool and yeah you feel like you get to know them a bit more because you get to see their homes and their spaces and their and 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 where they live and you see pepper labeja in her home with all of her children kind of just hanging out around the house. You know what I mean? And I think there's a beautiful shot I loved when Pepper is talking about how like these kids, their mothers don't love them. And so I love them. Like they're my children and she's speaking and she's in the frame, but the camera's focused on her child, her drag, her drag child in the background. And like there's storytelling with just the visuals of like allowing us into their homes in a way that's, yeah, it's just, it's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I watched this this morning and my soon to be brother-in-law is in town and he was watching it with me. It was really interesting uh, because I heard him chuckling and he's not somebody who's exactly all that um, knowledgeable or invested in queer culture or drag culture at that. Uh, but it was, it was really interesting to have like a conversation with him after it about gender. And he started like very kindly questioning me. He's like, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you like, <laughs> What are you? What do you feel is like the way, yeah. What do you? What do you feel is the reason or like why you express yourself the way you do and stuff? And I essentially went on this long tirade about how the binary is so harmful to everybody, and I've never felt comfortable living within a binary, even when I grew up outside of queer spaces, questioning my sexuality and my gender. I never even had the language until I was an adult to describe how I felt, and even that has been a long, arduous, and still ongoing process in which I'm constantly moving through gender and moving through sexuality. And I've, you know, texted you just in our time that we've been friends and been like, I'm on a different stage of my gender journey at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm reading different material and taking in different uh, perspectives and stuff from queer folk, not usually academics. I'm not reading fucking theory on this (laughs) stuff. I'm reading experience and I'm reading and experience experiencing with people who have moved through similar journeys um and so i really loved the fact that like somebody just sitting in the room with this was taken enough by it to become interested in like what is you what is queerness for you yeah i'm not queer but like how how are you 
queer and like what does that mean and what is uh what is being non-binary like what does that look like and i you know talk about how i'm not exactly the most flamboyant person i don't really have any kind of affectations but i exist in this liminal space because it's where i feel free and i feel comfortable and i feel at home in my body um having suffered from and really currently experiencing a strong bout of depression I think it's something depressed and anxious people can identify with is that it's hard to feel at home in your skin yeah, and it's hard to feel at home in your body. And my gender is one way at which I can feel more at home and feel more alive. And Paris is burning. I loved watching all of these people just feel at home in their skin and watching them Vogue and watching them dance and love and glide across the sand. And it's yeah, I just, wind. I think it's, this freeze the wind i think it's probably one of the most beautiful pieces of video of film of whatever i've ever seen in my entire fucking life yeah i mean yeah. I, I i was also struck by that even in the beginning when it's just showing people kind of getting into the in the club into the ball and men just touching each other lovingly and holding hands and and just kind of being friend friendly like platonically intimate with one another just holding on to one another and dancing and there's just something so beautiful about watching queer people just be comfortable touching one another and being comfortable in their own skin i mean i remember the first time i went to a gay bar as like an adult as a young as a young adult in college and like watching queer people kiss each other in tennessee was like and even though I grew up with queer people, like I was figuring out my own queerness and like, I would go to these gay bars and I would kiss a bunch of girls and it would feel so empowering and exciting and because I was in this town that I felt like I just couldn't do that because, you know, I'm in Nashville. I'm at play dance bar, which I recommend if you go to Nashville, um, I'm right off of music row. where like the streetest people on earth They're not music row uh, the, uh, my God, downtown Broadway, the strip where like all the straight cowboy tourists go. Like mm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. 500 feet away from like the straightest people in the city right now. Um, but I'm over here kissing a girl and it feels really great and awesome. And like, there's a freedom of these spaces of like, you really can just like, you can just like let your shoulders fall a little bit and you can, and you can, and you can feel comfortable in the clothes you put yourself in that night. And like, yeah, like that energy is just so evocative throughout the whole film and God. Yeah. It's just like, it's just, it's, it's hard to be comfortable in your own skin. I'm also still working towards that. Like I, you know, I'm, I deal a lot with uh, weight issues, you know what I mean? And like, I want to dress more masculinely, but like the fashion that is for masculine, women for more butch women are made for skinny women and so like it's hard for me sometimes to feel like I can dress in the ways I want to that fit a curvy fatter body like mine and so like I also kind of have been dealing with like weird kind of dysphoria stuff of just like I want to look like a hot guy but also a girl version of a hot guy but also my body isn't the right Mm -hmm. type of body that looks good like that and like it's so it's like, yeah, I'm also feel like I'm kind of on my own little journey of just like how to express the way I want to look and feel free in my body. And it's there's yeah, there's an aspirational aspect of this film as you watch this and you're like, I could I could do that one day. And I'm sure every day these people didn't always feel that comfortable in their bodies, but like Yeah. I don't know. It's still really beautiful. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's it's amazing. Um <laughs> I think I think final thoughts are almost uh, moot at this point. But you did you you told me off mic you had something a little nugget you wanted to share with I'm, me, and I'm very excited. We don't normally do like 
popcorn notes as we call them on ADP on this, but this is one where I feel like there's just random stuff I do want to say to you. And the one I wonder if it's do you, something I know too, about Dorian Corey. Do you know about this? Yeah. Okay, so y'all. Is it about somebody who might have bit bit it? Yeah. So everyone, if you yeah, while you're watching, yeah, this is the craziest story ever. This is my Vigo broke his toe, but for Paris is burning. <laughs> so when this film was being filmed, while we are in Dorian Corey's home, a few years later, she would sadly pass away. Um, she died of AIDS-related complications. Um, yeah, we've talked about that. She was. Uh, she has a strong legacy in the ball culture and the ball world. And um, when she died, they found a preserved dead body in her house so when this film was being filmed there was a full mummified dead man in her home um i would recommend going to her wikipedia to look look it up it's absolutely insane the investigators determined he was probably dead for 25 years here's the thing I get the impression based on how investigators talked about it that maybe he was abusive and Dorian killed him in self-defense and being a queer person trans woman possibly um probably Mm -hmm. knew the cops would not take her side and am i i mean i'm making wide assumptions about dorian Corey as a person my assumptions is that she tried to preserve the body and hide it for her own safety knowing that um she could very well die if she were sent to prison and and had to engage with the police um who acted for famously not great to trans people and people of color um, so I want to say like wholeheartedly, like I, I'm not mad that Dorian Curry killed this man. I just think that is the wildest thing ever that wildest, like, yes. mostly the fact that he was like mummified, <laughs> like that's the thing that is yeah. absolutely wild <laughs> to me. I, I wrote in my notes, literally Dorian, Dorian Corey, an icon with a dead body in her closet. I wrote in my, <laughs> in my notes. Um, so that is just one of the craziest, like, uh, trivia items about this movie that I feel like I always have to tell people. Cause I'm like, y'all, did you know? yeah um, no it's that is no, it's wild it's crazy yeah and i guess before we go i just do want to like make sure i talk about um uh willie ninja who is also i think the only kind of other like main character we haven't talked about i feel like there's main characters right in this film there's there's dorian mm-hmm. who is like the historian right dorian is who is sort of explaining to us the the term she's talking about shade she's talking about reading she's telling us what balls are she's she's sort of the person who is telling us about the culture and then we have the stories of you know octavia and venus uh and pepper these these uh you know trans women and gender non-conforming uh legendary children of the houses that they belong to um but but willie ninja was absolutely like the voguing guy like he was the he was the father the mother of the house of, of ninja and he was the the main kind of uh proprietor and person who really pushed voguing into the mainstream i think and i do love that we get to see him have a little bit of success in this film once we don't really acknowledge it in this movie but in 1990 uh madonna's vogue came out and obviously shot voguing into the stratosphere of mainstream media and everyone wanted to know what voguing was and they don't really use it by name right they don't really acknowledge madonna but that was i think a huge proponent of why willie ninja was able to sort of capitalize on that and so i just wanted to mention him because um a brilliant choreographer and brilliant artist and uh yeah. really great guy and i'm really glad that we got to see him have some kind of success but obviously there's a double-edged sword to madonna sort of co-opting this culture um, that I think is talked about no. more in other documentaries. Um, there, oh gosh, hold on. 
how do I look maybe? Uh, yes. How do I look? I heard about was a kind of follow up um, documentary to mm-hmm. Paris is burning. Um, but there's a 2016 documentary called strike a pose that revisits the dancers and voguers from Madonna's blonde ambition tour. And I think that documentary speaks really eloquently to the mixed bag of Madonna's co-opting of voguing. And like it did give a lot of really amazing exposure to this art form, but um Madonna kind of took it and ran. And then once the hype was over, artists like Willie Ninja were sort of left in the dust. And so, yeah, I don't know, just wanted to bring that up. Willie Ninja's great. I love watching him dance. He, the way he moves his body is just magnificent. And I just, we hadn't talked about him yet. So I, before we go, I wanted to just mention him. Yeah. No, I think he's important to mention. He's, like you said, he's the voguing guy. And he had, I think, some of the most crossover success out of anybody. You listed Madonna, but I think he also worked with Janet Jackson. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. there was some other stuff. He appeared on a lot of late night and daytime talk shows. Um, so I think he almost was like the ambassador of the drag scene. It's like, at least from like the brief research I did, that was the feeling I got. That he acted as ambassador, was really proud, took that role really seriously. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning that unfortunately he did pass away in 2006 of uh, AIDS-related complications. But while he was here, he was like, a, I mean, just an effervescent shining beacon and so fun. I loved the sequences of him uh, teaching like uh, women how to dance, like in his dance studio. Just love, again, getting to see <laughs> they have to these people the live a life. Wiles. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, are there any other final thoughts, Mackenzie? I'm just looking through my notes. Um, again, I recommend the queen documentary. It's on YouTube, but an hour mm. long crystal LaBeja is in that film. She is the mother, the original mother of the house of LaBeja, who we see pepper was sort of, um, who took it over after her. Just it's again, a spiritual prequel and kind of gives you an idea of how the drag houses began. Cause crystal sort of is like, I'm going to make my own thing. And we get to see the kind of the, the the fruit of that labor in Paris is burning. Uh yeah, sorry I'm doing I'm doing full on popcorn notes, but I also just I I love the line Elizabeth Taylor is famous, so is Pepper LaBeja. I loved that line. I don't mm. know why. It just really resonated with me. And the last thing I wanted to mention is uh before I give my obvious five star rating that I already have up here, did you notice a a little connection to another film we have covered on this podcast popped up? in the sequence where they're talking about voguing blowing up and guest judges that were coming to the drag balls to judge. I saw Fran. There was, a, there was some, yeah, their Franly Woods showed up and Gwen, I love. Gwen Verdon was there and she was the like second oh, one shit. who was like, they're oh, just so shit. much fun and they dance so beautifully. Like it was just like a second of Gwen Verdon and obviously all that jazz she's uh, represented in that film as well. But I just, I was like, Gwen, I like lost my mind. I did not. <laughs> I, I know who you're talking. I know exactly the sequence you're talking yeah. about and the exact person and the words she said, but no, I did not clock it as being Gwen Verdon. I think I might've missed I had subtitles on, so you I think I might have missed her. Uh, yeah, it definitely covers it up. Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, no. I thought th- that's great. It's great. Wow. Uh, great catch. And, you know, if you choose polyester, God help you. Again, I I could just quote this movie all day. It's so fun. It's so brilliant. Mm-hmm. It is a seminal piece of art. I think it is maybe one of the greatest queer films and most necessary queer films to ever be made. Um, if you have not seen this film, you need to seek it out, especially if you are a queer person and want to feel connected to our history as queer people. Uh, in this world you need to watch this film five stars all day long it's i think one of the greatest movies ever made yeah 
Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself, Mackenzie, but I'm going to uh, fall flat off my but I'm going to fall flat on my face trying. Um, everything you said is true. It is absolutely something every single queer person and cis straight person should watch. I fervently believe this should be required viewing for every single human being at least living in the United States of America. Yeah. Um, I have to speak, to give power to your words, I have never felt more connected to my queer identity while watching a film than while watching Paris is Burning. It is clearly a five-star movie for me. Um, I so emotional during and after viewing it. And if this podcast is not evidence, I, I just, I cannot express the gratitude and the sadness and the happiness I have thinking about this movie and thinking about the lives, which it captures and preserves forever and ever. Um, I, I texted you to this, that if it weren't all on the channel already, I would have made it my last purchase at the Barnes and Noble sale. Uh, but it's on the channel and I'm not going to be silly, but November baby, I am getting myself Paris is burning. It's the first thing I'm buying. Nice. I love it so much. I, I, I can't stop thinking about these Queens and these women and I love them. I'll say it again. I love them so much. It's five stars. Hell yeah. If you haven't watched it yet, get your ass to the criterion channel or type it into the, fucking google i'm sure it's on youtube i think or something. it is literally on youtube and it's lower quality yeah. but it's there like it is this movie is around there. to watch yeah yeah it's an effervescent beautiful portrait of a culture that isn't gone it's different but it's not gone it's always going to be here um yeah it's amazing i yeah yeah <laughs> Play I on. think if I could just view a TV or a film or anything, I'd do that instead of the money. Of course, I do want the money because I want the luxury that goes with it. But I want to be wealthy. If not wealthy, content, comfortable. You know? I want to be somebody. I mean, I am somebody. I just want to be a rich somebody. <laughs> Women don't go out of their way because they are women. I went out my way because I wasn't, and I felt that I wanted to be the best I can be. The Virginia Slims girl is here. This was not a game for me or fun. This is something that I want to live. She's here in person. Hopefully, God willing, by 1988, I fully hope to become a full-pledged woman of the United States. Well, <laughs> I don't believe we have any uh, any letters or voicemails this week, correct? We actually do, Mackenzie. Um, uh, what? Give it to me. Yes, 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 yes. Um, subject line, new to Criterion from a listener named Abshir Hassan. Uh, Hassan writes, hi, I wanted to ask you guys, what's your opinion on upgrades to 4Ks of titles already in the collection? especially when those upgrades don't have HDR or Dolby Vision. I really don't understand why upgrade from Blu-ray. Thanks, Hassan. Uh -huh. uh, I'll let you at this question, but you don't really have a 4K player, do you? I don't have a 4K player. I'm hoping I have... Uh, Rachel did purchase me the Red Shoes 4K, and I've bought the Casablanca 4K, which isn't 
Criterion, but I own a couple 4K discs. Um, I generally, I'm sure some people who are really into like media stuff are going to cringe their little faces off when I say this. I watch my discs on my Xbox, uh, which has a Blu-ray player. So I watch my Blu-rays on Xbox. Um, I'm thinking of upgrading soon to the Series XS. So that will give me a 4K player, I believe. So like, I might honestly use my Xbox as a 4K player if I I might do some research. Um, but the short answer is no, I don't have a 4K player. And so I'm not actually 100% sure. Um, I've never actually gotten to in-home watch a 4K disc. So I'm actually not 100% sure of the difference between Blu-ray and 4K. But I can say, without a shadow of a doubt, I have Fantastic Mr. Fox Criterion on DVD. Pop that into my TV, my 4K TV. And it looked like full shit. So that was definitely my uh, push I needed to say, okay, I need to get everything to Blu-ray and up now because like my TV is too good. Um, but Ian, you you do watch 4Ks. Do you notice a difference between a Blu-ray and a 4K image? You know, Mackenzie, I'm going to basically second everything you said. Like blue Blu-rays are, you know, far superior to DVDs. Um, and what For I sure. will, and basically everything you said, like, people are going to cringe when I say what I'm going to say, but like I have a entry level 4k player and I have a bunch of 4k discs with HDR and Dolby vision. I have a bunch of 4k discs without it. Simply put 4k is just four times the resolution of Blu-ray. Um, I'm probably preaching to the choir. Hassan, you probably know that. And so do probably most of our listeners, but essentially it's just a higher quality of picture. I would say that the HDR and Dolby Vision are what make it worth it, but it's also the mm. transfer and it's also the disc. It's also what boutique Blu-ray company is putting that out. If it's Criterion, chances are it's rather hit or miss when it comes to the HDR and the Dolby Vision. Either you don't mm. even have it or either it's not that good is what I've heard. I don't have a lot of Criterions on 4K. The one disc that has actually ever made a true different, true difference for me is my True Colors uh 4k that i have mm. sorry is my three colors 4k that i have i have oh, the yeah, 4k yeah. version from curzon a uk based boutique blu-ray company that is very similar to the criterion collection they put out very similar films if not the exact same films in the united kingdom and their transfer of three colors red on 4k is phenomenal the hdr is insane but that's just one example. Essentially, Hassan, I think what you're hearing from us is that it depends. If you've got Blu-rays and you're not a audio-visual media file, like somebody who's so, so concerned with the picture quality, it doesn't make a difference. You're good just buying your Blu-rays with your Blu-ray player and your high-definition TV. Yeah, anyway. my I I like the picture to look good. Like when I put my fan, <laughs> I put my Fantastic Mr. Fox in, and I was like, oh, this is full shit. I'm going to HBO Max. Yeah. Like I was like, I'm not about to watch this movie with this resolution. No, and I'm gonna hopefully upgrade it to blue soon. Um, but yeah, I think that it's one of those like if it's like one of your favorite movies in the whole world, I'm always like, yeah, go for it. Like if it makes you happy to get it. But like, yeah, if you're not like a fiend and it's not, and you don't think you will notice the difference there probably isn't much of one yeah. you know what i mean like i don't know if i'm the kind of person that could probably see a difference between a 4k and a blue i probably couldn't so like if it looks good like i mean i get that i got the all that jazz blue recently i can't imagine that movie looking better like i you know what i mean no. like i'm fine with that version like so i think yeah it's probably just preference and like whether or not it's something you care about i mean yeah. like I, I, i'm a very chill person about that i straight up can't tell the difference in resolution myself it's the hdr and the dolby vision 
um, that really makes a difference for me. And there's just, there's no if, ands, or buts about that. If it's got it and it's good, it's going to make a difference. So I guess I guess we've answered the question. What do you you think so? I think so. I think we we're rambling now, but uh, uh, that's our last letter. Our last no voicemails this week. But if, as always, if you want to send us anything, you can send us letters and voicemails to thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. You can write to us about Paris is Burning or anything we've covered before, as well as what Ian will soon announce. We're talking about next week. Um, but also a friendly reminder that this is probably nearing the end of us accepting letters and voicemails about your Barnes and Noble halls. So the, the sale is ending. Uh, it will have already ended by the time you listen to this episode. So it's the perfect time to look at what you got. Send us your voicemail. Uh, we record by the time you're hearing this, our next recording, I'm pulling up a calendar is going to be August 3rd that Thursday. So uh, you have until then to send us your voicemails and let us know what you got at Barnes and Noble. Yes. Excellent. Okay, Mackenzie, are you ready? I am ready. Tell the people what we will be watching next week. A dramatically different direction. <laughs> Literally. In the nightmare labyrinth of the occupation, Paris, France, 1942. During the Nazi occupation, Robert Klein, a successful art dealer who benefits from the misfortunes of those who are ruthlessly persecuted, discovers by chance that there is another Robert Klein, apparently a Jewish man, someone with whom he could be mistakenly identified, something dangerous in such harsh times. We're watching Joseph Losey's Mr. Klein from 1976. Nice. I've never seen this. I've never seen the Losey. I'm excited. I've never seen it either, Mackenzie. Very excited. A Losey recently just got added to the collection, The Servant. Yeah, The Servant. And he's been on my radar. Uh... I know you know a little bit more about him with your theater background, but um, at least that's what I thought. I don't. I don't know. Who oh, the, you I don't? Know, Never I don't. mind. Uh, I'm a fool. You're a I fool. I got to throw my degree out. <laughs> oh, he's a Brechtian guy. All right. All that's right. That's why. Right. Yeah, you knew that yes. about him. And that's oh, why. Oh, my God. And he does Harold Pinter stuff. All right. I know guys who he's worked with. I okay. I was a, I was a bit of a Pinter girly in college. <laughs> that's what you said exactly the last time we brought him <laughs> up. Yeah. That's um, so embarrassing. <laughs> well, that's super exciting. You know more than you think you do. I do. <laughs> well, until then. See you next week on The Criterion Connection. Bye.